Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ. And today we have gathered together with us most of our usual cohort of Christ-confessing Concordians, Pastor Jonathan Visk, Pastor Peter Ill, and myself, Pastor Sean Smith, as your host today. And today, though my voice doesn't sound like it right now, I really am quite excited because we get to talk about baptism, guys. I mean, is there anything more Lutheran than talking about baptism? I like that question. I wanted to make a joke, but I can't make a joke on that question. And uh, what do you mean? That's a great question. I think, yes, but but then how dare you? Jesus sent us to make Christians. And how does he say to do it? Ah, yeah, right? You remind me of, uh, there was a moment when I was in a group. I won't even tell you what group. But it was a group of people who were trained theologically. Let's just say that. And I was complaining about how young Christians, Lutherans, don't understand how much they need their baptism. And another gentleman, an August gentleman, older, wizened, respectable, not a bad man, not a bad pastor. (laughs) But he said, no, they don't. They need to know how much they need Jesus. And it just... I, I was awestruck because I thought I thought I had said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <You know? laughs> it, it, to, to me, it definitely falls in line with the baptized life, and well, you know, it, and and kind of backing up to to my question there too as well. You know, is there anything more Lutheran? I mean, we we've made the case on this show for over a year when we talked about it. Article four, the the article on justification, right, it's the right. article that the church stands or falls on. And so, I mean, we we could say, well, that's that's what being Lutheran is all about. But I mean, it too hinges all in this baptized life. I mean, baptism is very much justification at work. Um, you know, and, and where Jesus joins us to Himself. Hmm that we have the the hope of eternal life in him that takes place at baptism. I mean, all of these things connect in uh, to baptism. And that's why I just say it, it's so very Lutheran and so very good to talk about. Just, just a whole lot to talk about. Or to put it a slightly different way, if justification is what it means to be Lutheran, then justification can be really abstract. Jesus died on a cross on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago. Well, that's very nice, but how does Jesus get that justification, that forgiveness, that life forgiveness and salvation to me, and why do I care? I mean, that that's a fundamental question, and without baptism, without the Lord's Supper, without the means of grace, the proclamation of the word, and all that comes with it, then we are disconnected from that justification. But here comes Jesus with a real connected justification. So there is no question about who is baptized. The person dripping wet with baptismal water, whether it happened five minutes ago or 55 years ago, is the baptized of Christ. They are the one who is loved by Christ, who has been taught his commandments, and who has that gift of renewal and regeneration, just like Scripture says, just like Jesus says. Yeah, and and it's certainly strengthened in the Lord's Supper to go there next, too, as well. Or as I was recently uh, making the case uh, on my my social media on Facebook, um, you know, when when I uh, teach and, and in my practice, of speaking the words of absolution to a congregation, I very intentionally position myself behind the baptismal mm-hmm. font so that when they um, hear those absolution words spoken to them after their confession, right at the beginning of the service, that they see that through the waters of their baptism. I mean, I want that very intentional. And I think what you said there, Pastor Hill, is, is, is right on it. It makes it, you know, in the way that we teach the sacraments as Lutherans, it makes it visible, tangible, and real. Uh, you know, the, this, 
this great gift, this great sacrament of baptism. And, and, and so there's a lot to talk about and certainly connects in with all these things. I like what he, what he said about it being abstract. Justification is just a theory until it happens to you. So, yes, Jesus died and his death does justify you. But how does that death justify you? Where? where? When does it get to you? The thief on the cross had this marvelous moment where Jesus, like, literally got to say it to his face. You know, you're going to be with me. So where does where does he say it to you? And the only place he actually says it's just you and you alone is your baptism. Everywhere else it's, it's a plural you. It's a throwing out there you. In your baptism, it's just you. Now, you're, you're, yeah, what's your question? I think I know what your question is. The, the question is, but Pastor Fisk, what about uh, individual absolution? Oh, you're right. That works, too. That okay. works, too. I'll take I thought that. So. I'll take that. Do we do that as Lutherans? I, I do. I, I don't oh, know if anybody else does, but I do. <laughs> but, but what is the absolution? And and this is a question for, for all of the listening catechism scholars who... who, who some, some folks sit down and get, get really bothered by this. Hey, pastor, pastor, did you know that in Luther's small catechism, there are six chief parts? The commandments and the creed and the Lord's Prayer and baptism and confession and the Lord's Supper. But in the large catechism, there's only five parts. Well, that's because... The part on baptism also includes the part on absolution. In fact, uh, I wanted to read a little bit of uh, Luther's thought today. I got this from Treasury of Daily Prayer from my devotions, but it really is timely for us, especially on on this program and as we take up baptism. Um, Why don't you just go ahead and find it and leave the radio silent for a moment? I I had it and then it went away. I apologize. Okay. so, a, a little bit of a reading from Luther. Just as the truth of this divine promise of baptism, once pronounced over us, continues until death, so our faith in it ought never to cease, but to be nourished and strengthened until death by the continual remembrance of this promise made to us in baptism. I want to pause for a second. It talks about faith in baptism. That's not talking about believing your baptism as in more than you believe in Jesus. Not at all. But rather, this is the baptismal faith that you have. The faith... Uh, that comes to you in baptism that has its object in Jesus. So your baptismal faith is faith in Jesus. And uh, Luther goes on from there to tie that into the uh, the absolution is really just the redeclaration of your baptism. In your baptism, you hear that you are forgiven by Christ. And then every time you uh, come to the absolution, you hear that same declaration over and over again. You're still baptized. Your bit about faith in Jesus is, is very important, though. So when Jesus tells you, I wash you in my name, if you believe him, you are believing in Jesus. If you don't believe him, you're not believing in Jesus at that moment. Now, there are Christians who do believe in Jesus, but don't believe him when he says this thing to them, right? And what we're kind of contesting is that this is the greatest strength you have. Like in every moment of trial and temptation and struggle, there is nothing more certain than your baptism. Now, we can make the argument absolution in the supper as well. You got to talk that way about all these things. But this is this is the new birth, man. This, this is the spot, yeah? Yeah, and I, and I like what you made the point earlier there as well as re-emphasizing what you just said, too. I, it, it reflects for me the way Luther talks about the gospel. The gospel is something that is abstract until you know and believe that it is for, for you. you. Mm. And those are the key words, of course, in the Lord's Supper when you, you know, this is Christ's body for you. This is Christ's blood for you. But also very much here in baptism, this is for you. And this is your great comfort through all of life. Mm. Well, I'd just like to make the point that I said, you know, there's a lot to talk about here very, very Lutheran thing. And we're already several minutes into the show and have made that point happen. And we haven't even got to the apology of the Augsburg Confession yet. Mm-mm. But yeah, it reminds me of, I've been teaching the Augsburg Confession um, uh, at uh, my dual parish in our Bible class there on Wednesday nights. And uh, when I came to the section on baptism there, I thought I could do it all in one night and it drug on for several weeks. And then my wife kind of made fun of me privately. And, and she was like, well, did you really think as a Lutheran pastor, you could spend just one night on baptism? And I was like, uh, yep. I, Good point. I, I, I'm just gonna like hear hear that because uh, I, I started teaching in a Bible study at a, at a church where I've been helping out on the Book of Matthew, and in the first week I got through the genealogy 
which, you know, you could spend a lot of time on that, too. I got through that. And then a, a, a layman taught the next week, and they went through, like, nearly two chapters. And I came back, and I said, no, guys, 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 just got to know. That's not the way this is going to work when you get a pastor around. <laughs> <laughs> yep. My yeah, wife so. had to be absent from Bible study this past week, and she came home, and she looked at me, and she said, so, did you read the half of the chapter that you had been planning on? And I sheepishly looked down, and I boldly said, no, but we really did do a good job on those three verses. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, there's so much there. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's get into the Apology of the Augsburg Confession here, because there is there is some important points to make about specifically what's said here. And for a change in the Apology, it's short. We might be able to cover what is written here Don't in one day. Don't speak too soon, yeah, Sean. I know. Don't <laughs> speak too soon. We, we will be prone to talk a lot about this. I think this. we just counted the chickens before the I was going to say, don't count your sacraments before they're pontifically confuted. <laughs> Well said. Wow. Um, except okay. for, I wanted to make the point where I was going here in just a second, is that, uh, and, and the editor's note uh, in the Concordia Reader's Edition that we're using uh, makes this point right away here about Article 9 on baptism. It says the pontifical confutation, which we talked about before, that was the uh, response of the Roman Catholic theologians into, uh, or the response to the Augsburg Confession with the Lutherans presented as, you know, what we believe, teach, and confess in our churches. So the confutation was the response to that. And then the apology that we're going through now was the response to the confutation. So the pontifical confutation accepted the Augsburg Confession's teaching on baptism. So that's why there's much shorter written mm -hmm. here than, say, like Article 4 that took us over a year to get through. Um, because on the surface, at least, I'm going to make the case, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag here and, and and say, I don't wholeheartedly believe that they did accept this. Um, but uh, uh, on the surface, they did accept officially. this article. Yeah, yeah they, they said they did. And they said they did, right. But we'll, we'll maybe talk about here yet today, or if this goes on to another week, uh, how maybe I'm not fully convinced that they actually did. But let's go ahead and read from the article here. So paragraph 51, uh, which is on page 153 of the second edition of the Concordia Reader's Edition, Article 9 on baptism begins this. Article 9 has been approved, in which we confess that baptism is necessary for salvation that children are to be baptized, and that the baptism of children is not in vain, but is necessary and effective for salvation. Since the gospel is taught among us purely and diligently by God's favor, we receive also this fruit from it. In our churches, no Anabaptists have arisen. This is because the people have been strengthened by God's word against the wicked and rebellious faction of these robbers. This is also among the distinct errors of the Anabaptists we condemn. They argue that the baptism of little children is useless, for it is very certain that the promise of salvation also applies to little children. It does not, however, apply to those who are outside of Christ's church, where there is neither word nor sacraments. Christ's kingdom exists only with the word and sacraments. Therefore, it is necessary to baptize little children that the promise of salvation may be applied to them according to Christ's command to baptize all nations, as it says in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Just as in this passage salvation is offered to all, so baptism is offered to all, to men, women, children, infants. It clearly follows, therefore, that infants are to be baptized because salvation is offered with baptism. Second, it is clear that God approves of the baptism of little children. Therefore, the Anabaptists who condemn the baptism of little children believe wickedly. God's approval of the baptism of little children is shown by this. He gives the Holy Spirit to those baptized, as it says in Acts 2, 38, 39. For if this baptism would be empty, the Holy Spirit would be given to no one. No one would be saved. And finally, there would be no church. This reason, even by itself, can well enough establish good and godly minds against the godless and fanatical opinions of the Anabaptists. I'm sorry. I'm laughing at godless and fanatical. Yeah. It's, it's just, they're, they're winsome words. They're winsome. Yes. <laughs> well, and, you know, we laugh at this because, you know, we what we know what life in the church militant for the, the truth of God's word is is like. But you, you kind of get, you know, this this is Melanchthon. He's been slamming the 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 Roman church here in their theology for quite a bit. And, and now he's kind of given a backhand to other people. He's like, yes, this is approved and accepted by them. But while we're at it, let's just go ahead and jump on the Anabaptists and make sure that their error is known. But yeah. Pastor Smith, what's an Anabaptist? 
Oh, good question. Why don't you go ahead and answer? Rats. Well, they're followers of Zwingli. Yeah, yeah. And but if you don't know who Ulrich Zwingli is, uh, he is a gentleman who taught a a uh, kind of a law heavy uh, symbolic use of the sacraments. And so he would to say that you should get baptized because Jesus said so, and this is a sign of your commitment to Jesus. Um, and if memory serves, the best. Uh, and we hear the word Anabaptist, and we think about uh, our present-day, say, modern American Baptists. Those aren't the same. Don't don't put American Baptists and Anabaptists, or baptize again is what the word Anabaptist means, uh, into the same camp. Uh, modern examples of Anabaptists would be more like the Amish or the Mennonites, who are uh, pacifists, politically speaking, who are uh, sim- confess a symbolic presence of Christ in, in the sacraments and who, who very much work towards those ends. I'm not going to be so quick to say don't put them in the camp. Okay. Because I think they're on the spectrum. Oh, fair. And, and you, have, you have this, I mean, we even have this among Lutherans, unfortunately. You know, you kind of have this spectrum of, of Lutherans, and we have kind of the more uh, heterodox side of Lutheranism. And I'll say that that would definitely be the ELCA, what we know as the ELCA today. Uh, and then you have the more confessional orthodox side of Lutheranism, which would be the LCMS and things there. Um, within Anabaptist spectrum, for instance, it's complicated by a few things. And one, that the Anabaptist movement was closely connected with the Reformed movement of John Calvin. Um, and so your, your point is well taken there, that especially when it comes to our modern American Baptists, um, that they kind of have this, this mixture, probably more of Reformed with Calvin in their theology, but they definitely have a good bit of that uh, Ulrich Zwingli Anabaptist theology as well. Um, but yes, on... They're on one end of the spectrum, maybe, while as on the other end of the spectrum, you have those Amish, the Mennonites, and, and things of that nature as well. I got, I got two pieces I want to throw into that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, one is that it's, it's important to recognize that the term Anabaptist is, is a movement term that was a historical movement that was associated with things that were of a political nature, like pacifism and, and a changing of governments and, and things like that. And in that sense, it's really important that we don't say modern Baptists and Anabaptists are the same thing. They do share a common error, rebaptizing people. And that common error uh, is at the center of a lot of other things that they end up believing and leads them in other directions. And so there, there's, I might, I don't, the spectrum way is one way of looking at it, or you can kind of look at it like I have two different circular uh, pieces of glass of different color. One's one's red and one's yellow, and if I put them over each other, you get orange in the middle. There's this overlap, and the question is how much do they overlap, right? And there's a significant amount of overlap between the Anabaptists and the modern Baptists, but they are different movements. They're historically different people. I mean, they did, modern Baptists did not arise out of the Anabaptists. They arose out of the Church of England, like a totally different thing, which actually does have Reformed roots. But that brings me to another point. You talk about the spectrum. One of the most important things that I think I ever picked up from Hermann Sasse, German theologian who uh, served uh, patiently underneath the Nazi regime and, and confessed boldly against them and, and also confessed against others uh, at Barman and whatnot. But anyway, uh, one of the most important things I think I ever learned from him is he said there's only four churches. There's only four. Rome, the Far Eastern Communions, Lutherans, and the rest. Of Protestantism. Now, that's that's fight and talk to the Reformed. They don't like that at all because it puts Baptists and the most staunch Calvinists in the same camp. But he said, here's how you know this. They commune together. They are part of the same communion, right? They have that common union. And in this, then, your point that the, the Anabaptists and the Baptists are really on that same spectrum of, even if they don't say it's a symbolic interpretation of the, the sacraments, it is certainly not a justifying interpretation of the sacraments right and and in that there's a lot of similarities yeah does that help i think it does um and one of the hallmarks like pastor fisk you pointed out is the anabaptists would baptize again and they denied the the efficacy or the 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 usefulness uh of 
infant baptism. And they would say it's not enough for you to be baptized as an infant or as a baby. You have to be able to make that confession of faith yourself. And the the challenge that that brings is it makes baptism something that the Christian does, not something that the Christian receives. And this is where uh, in our confessions, Melanchthon continues to reiterate, baptism is something that Jesus does to and for Christians. Jesus brings justification here in baptism. And the Anabaptists will say, here is a place where the Christian shows God how, how serious they are and how committed they are to the Christian life. I, I wonder here, too, because we, we've talked about this, and I think you pointed it out very well there, Pastor Fist, that you know, the Anabaptist movement was a, was a political movement. You could make the same case of Lutherans, though. I mean, there were certainly political issues going yeah. on for yeah. us and so forth. And so I think this is true of life in the church here on earth, right? That there are these political, practical, civil realm issues, uh, but then there are also issues of theology. And so when we're talking about this in, in, in the realm of baptism, we're talking about their theology here, mm-hmm. um, but but in identifying who the Anabaptists are, they are certainly connected to this um, political movement as well. And so I, I guess for now, I'm going to set that aside. We've identified them as connected with that, but I think we could go off on a whole tangent talking about their political well, But what I think is, is, is really huge here is, so we... we We've, we've affirmed that when it says that the Anabaptists are godless and fanatical, we're not saying the Baptists are godless and fanatical because they're Anabaptists, but we are actually still saying that rebaptizing babies is godless and fanatical and wicked. Right. I mean, that's some, that's some nasty talk. Well, we're coming at it from the point of theology. What does their theology confess? Mm. And... And here, before we even get to there, and we may not get to it before our break, but we can certainly come back to it. I, I want to back up to that first line, because I actually read all the way through one article in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. I think we should celebrate that. I mean, I think you did a, it on purpose, just so you yeah, could say we did it. Just so we could. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, right there, that first line, you know, it says, Article 9 has been approved in which we confess that baptism is necessary for salvation. All right. So it's been approved. And I kind of let the cat out of the bag that I don't know that it is actually approved. They say they agree with this, right? But as we tied it in before we even got into this article, baptism, especially for us as Lutherans, because of the what Scripture teaches about it, is connected to this issue on the article of justification. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, do you guys have any thoughts with a couple minutes before we need to take a hard break here? Kind of... How how would Rome actually deny this, though they say they approve it, as it connects to that chief article? Um, I don't want to say that Rome would deny it, uh, but they would nuance it, and they would talk about it this way. In baptism, you have the power to become a child of God. And that's mm-hmm. kind of a, of a fairly typical Roman Catholic response to baptism, that it is an empowering sacrament. And uh, in medieval theology, the Roman Catholics taught that baptism removes original sin, but to remove those sinful actions that you have committed, you need to go to penance, you need to go to the sacrament of the altar, and, and use the other sacraments within the sacramental system to remove the sins that you had committed, but your sinful nature was removed by your, uh, by your baptism. And so... They would talk about your ability to uh, to kind of wipe the slate clean and and begin the process from there because they saw justification not as uh, the gifts of God delivered once for all in baptism, but they saw it as a process begun in baptism and brought towards a greater completion through penance or absolution and the Lord's Supper and through unction, uh, the, the, the anointing and so on. I think that's well said there, that position of the Roman theology in regards to baptism. I'm going to, you know, it gives you the power to become the children of God. I think that's a good summary of it. I'm going to ask you to hold on to that as we are coming up on a hard break. We're going to take a break for a message from our sponsors. But please join us as we now connect this into that thought about how the Anabaptists deny this also.
This week on the Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah. We talk about how you can become a missionary and tell them about Jesus. And also what recent tax law changes mean for our Lutheran school families in Missouri and Illinois. What are district and synod conventions all about? We'll take an inside look with the secretary of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And we'll discuss practical ways for showing mercy to our neighbors experiencing cancer. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO. Underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. The Orphan Grain Tree, Missouri, Illinois branch is now operating from St. Luke's Lutheran Church at 4325 Taft Avenue in South City. This branch has been serving the local pantries for the past two decades. In John 14:33, we read, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. That is the guiding scripture for the Orphan Grain Train. For more information on the Missouri, Illinois branch of the Orphan Grain Train, contact Mel at 314-440-8125. That's 314-440-8125. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 122, verse 1. Each weekday, the servants of God at the LCMS International Center gather together to receive the gifts of God in His Word. I invite you to join us weekdays, 10 a.m. for a live broadcast of daily chapel services on KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. You hear our voices every day as we speak the gospel, share the latest news, or for insightful and sometimes entertaining talk. Why not share your voice with us and send us your feedback, suggestions, and questions? Leave your comment at 314-996-1542. Be sure to follow us on social media, too, so you can like, comment, and share your favorite posts. Drop an email to KFUO at KFUO.org or send a snail mail letter to Worldwide KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. What many don't know is that the book of Psalms is one of the few books of the Bible to be printed as a standalone book. In fact, it was the first book to be printed in the British colonies of North America. It was titled The Whole Book of Psalms, but it became more popularly known as the Bay Psalm Book. In 1639, the ministers and magistrates in the colonies chose three ministers to translate the Psalms into metered English from the Hebrew texts, John Eliot, Richard Mather, and Thomas Weld. About 1,700 copies were printed in 1640 in Massachusetts. The Bay Psalm Book quickly became popular in churches in the New England colonies. Engage with the Bible with this book of all books. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to Concord Matters with our cohort of Christ-confessing Concordians, Pastor Jonathan Fiss, Pastor Peter Ill, and myself, Pastor Sean Smith, as your host today. Right before the break, we were talking about how this Article 9 on baptism was approved in the Roman confutation. That is that the Roman church theologians said, we agree with what you have said about baptism. And we kind of had Pastor Ill here make the point right before we went to break about how, well, maybe they don't fully approve it. They certainly do on the surface. They, they agree with us on the nature of baptism. Um, but when they, when they nuance it, I, I like the way that you put that, when they nuance it and start playing theology games, Maybe they don't fully approve it because if you and 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 I summarized the point that you made there that it makes you possible to become a child of God. Well, then this gets into works righteousness and all the other things that were connected with the Reformation. But the next part in here, too, that, that I, I really want to tie in before we talk about the Anabaptists and, and, and we kind of talked about that before the break as well. But this one line in here. Baptism is necessary for salvation. That's in quotes if you're reading along in your reader's edition, um, as, as that was from the Augsburg Confession. And then there's the word that, and then another set of quotes begins. Children are baptized. Children are to be baptized. Sorry, I jumped over there. 
children are to be baptized. So we'll get to the children are to be baptized, and that's where the rest of this article goes in talking about the Anabaptists. But I think it's important for us to lay this foundation of especially... Um, as, as we just saw with the Roman theologians, maybe they don't fully approve this if it makes it possible to become. But what does this line mean? Baptism is necessary for salvation. Pastor Fisk, you want to jump in there? Well, I would just, uh, I, I want to caveat or open it a little bit and then and, and we can bounce it around. But they, for Rome, baptism is indeed necessary for salvation. Absolutely. They, they completely agree with that. It's the beginning point of infused grace. Infused grace is a fancy way of, of saying magic juju juice <laughs> that you get to drink to become superpowered. And by superpowered, we mean righteous, right? And everything that Rome does, and this, this is important because when you talk to Roman Catholics, they say, oh, I believe in grace. I, be, I believe Jesus saves me by grace. What they mean is Jesus gives me super juice that makes me superpowered and I can become righteous with the super juice. Everything in their system revolves around that understanding. So baptism is necessary for salvation, not as a good work, but kind of as the power to do good works. And to approach it from that and, and see that difference is, is the first piece. Second piece, I mean, just to kind of more directly to your question, I mean, yeah, I've run into Lutherans who would come across this baptism is necessary for salvation. They'd be confused by this. They'd say, well, in fact, forget I've run into Lutherans. I was a Lutheran. In fact, oh my goodness. Okay, I'm going I'm to I'm take us on a tangent here. I remember a class at the seminary called, I don't think they even have it anymore, uh, but it was called Lutheran Mind. And it was a class that was supposed to completely break down our uh, young, eager, but not well-trained first-year would-be theologians' lack of understanding without letting us know that they were basically demolishing us. And yeah, I got yelled at in that class. Yeah. Well, okay, so they let you know that they were demolishing you. But with us, it was more like it was the, the gloves were still on. But there were three papers we had to write in that class, and you did not get graded on those papers. You got a pass-fail. And I remember vividly, and I, I'll kind of tell maybe why this happened afterwards, but I remember vividly the only one I failed was on baptism. And uh, actually, I'm, I do have to pre-caveat The way to pass the paper was to, in some point in your paper, say that baptism was salvific, that baptism saves you. And I remember being at a point in the middle of writing the paper where I was making my argument from the Bible and from the reading they'd had us do. And I was, so you're laying out your kind of, your argument and it's all making sense. And I came to the point where I had to conclude, according to everything else I knew, that baptism saved. And I wrote it and I went, that can't be right. And I deleted it, and I wrote something else instead, because that can't be right, because baptism can't be salvific. And then I failed that paper. Yeah, So I was that Lutheran. Now, I don't know if that helps the one out there to figure out how it is salvific, but at least sets up Pastor Peter Ill to talk about how to rightly understand this. But don't feel bad if, you, if, you, if this is like, what? Yeah, yeah, it's easy to miss this one. It is. And that's why the conversation that we had before about justification all by itself is a theory. Yeah. It's cut off. But baptism is really justification applied to me. And so it's not that baptism is, is how did you say it, Pastor Fisk? Juju juice? Something like <laughs> yeah. that. Um, baptism, nor the Lord's Supper, but especially baptism, isn't, uh, it's not magic. It it doesn't just magically change you from being an evil, uh, wicked person into being a saint externally visible to the world. Baptism brings in you a transformation by the power of the word of God. And it is the application of the cross. You have died with Jesus. You have risen with Christ because you are baptized. And so the power of baptism isn't in the water it isn't in the the pastor being there or the white clothes or the burning candle or anything like that the power of baptism is the word of god that says that you are forgiven in this renewal water of renewing water of regeneration and so that's exactly how we talk about baptism is it's not magic it is a a sacrament of God where Jesus comes to you and puts his cross on you and now he uh, he applies and gives you his justification and it counts for you and so baptism is the means by which Christ saves i i usually talk about it this way when i get to to bounce in and talk with my uh, confirmation students and with anybody else who will listen uh i have this a uh, little bit of a habit some people 
especially my wife, calls it an, an addiction. I like to buy things, usually books, on the internet. And so if I go online to my favorite internet retailer and buy books, whose books are they? Well, they're mine. But they're not in my cold clutch. They go in the back of a big brown truck that pulls up to the house. And the, the driver, my favorite man in the world, jumps out of the truck and brings me a box. And he goes, Pastor, I got three more boxes for you today. And I, and I do a little happy dance and I'm excited. That driver is the means mm. of bringing me what is already mine. Your forgiveness is yours from the cross, and it is delivered to you by baptism. Otherwise, it just hangs out there. But it is applied to and for you by this means, this medium, baptism. Can I throw out two words or two phrases that might help us make sense of this statement, too? And I'd like to hear that you guys can teach on it. But just it's important that people hear, okay, it's baptism is necessary for salvation, but not apart from faith, not against faith, right? So that's one of them. And the other one is baptism is necessary for salvation, but baptism is not absolutely necessary for salvation, right? Yeah. Well, I want you to say more on that. Just just keep going. Keep <laughs> on going. On which one? Absolutely necessary for salvation. Can a person be saved without baptism? Well, yes. Technically, if we're talking about water and word hitting a forehead, yes, the thief on the cross, the whole Old Testament for Pete's sake, right? And present-day Christians who might, in fact, hear of Jesus, believe, and die on the way to being baptized, yeah? So in that sense, we cannot say that baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation. However, it is the normal means by which Jesus promises with absolute certainty, yep, I got you. And so a Christian who is made a Christian by the preaching of the word and says, I love this Jesus guy, what's he want me to do next? Has to hear the word, be baptized, repent to be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. And then they go to get baptized. So anyone who rejects that is rejecting the Jesus they want to believe in. And the apart from faith thing, uh, the whole point of it is to give you something to believe, that you're baptized into Jesus, right? It, it's not apart from Jesus or away from Jesus, it's into Jesus. And I think to kind of make... To reinforce that point, you have uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts, where uh, the Holy Spirit commands Philip to, to go hang out by the desert highway, and he hears this guy reading out loud from Isaiah, and he says, do you know what you're reading about? The, the eunuch says, no, there's nobody to explain it to me. And so Philip jumps up in the chariot and begins to explain it. As they're riding along in the chariot, there is a pool of water, and this Ethiopian says, hey, look, water! What prevents me from being baptized? And so they go down into the water, and uh, the man is baptized. And, and then the Holy Spirit takes Philip away and drops him off in Azotus, and the Ethiopian goes on to Ethiopia to do what he was doing there, and and that that's kind of where we leave the story. But it's that point of, what's next? I've heard about Jesus, now what? Look, there's water. It's time to get baptized. Which, also, by the way, the, the text doesn't tell us, but uh, Isaiah doesn't mention baptism anywhere in the book of Isaiah directly. So apparently Philip, either the guy had a miraculous revelation straight from the Spirit, go get baptized. Probably not. Philip was actually saying, and baptism will unite you to this. And he's like, hey, water, let's do it. If memory serves in the text, I think it says, and he began to uh, to proclaim the gospel to him beginning with this text. Yeah, right. So he starts with Isaiah as a touch point and gives him the whole counsel of God, right. all kinds of wonderful stuff. Yeah, yeah. There, there are a few words in what you guys have been talking about well here that I kind of want to define. I'm not sure what order I want to deal with them. First, Pastor Ill, you talked about how baptism transforms us. And I think that that has... I think that's a faithful way to talk about it, and you talked about it very faithfully, but I think that has a way of being misunderstood and misapplied, and we've kind of talked about how that uh, is already misapplied a little bit. But you also talked about you know, uh, the, the absolutely word, but how did you say that phrase again? Baptism is not absolutely necessary for salvation. Baptism is not absolutely necessary for salvation. I guess I'm just going to pick up on that one because yep. it's on my mind right now with a m little more clarity of thought. So when you use the word absolutely there, how, how are you meaning this? As if no one can have what the, the as if no one can be saved without baptism. If it's, if it's impossible for one to believe without being baptized first. Okay, right. right. 
So, so to put it in another context that we've talked about on this show, right? We talk about how the law always accuses, right? right? Uh, the Latin lex semper accusat there, right? Um, but how we've talked about, it doesn't mean that the law only right. accuses. Would right. you make that kind of connection it's, that it's a similar thing here? It's right? a similar move. I'm not sure it's the exact same meaning, right? Right. But it's trying uh, to make sure. Right. It's trying to make sure that just because we know that baptism is the normal means of salvation, it's the way that you're brought to the church, that we don't run off and take that idea and create a heresy with it, basically. Because you can take as Luther on the on the the horse, right? Uh, theology is like a man on a drunk man on a horse, and he, he falls off one way, and then he tries to get back on. He pulls himself off the other way, and so the the teaching that baptism is necessary for salvation has a reason for being there, but you can abuse that teaching. And one way to keep from abusing it is to recognize that there are again. Uh, um, uh, Exceptions to extreme events, right? Uh, it is possible for a man to hear about Jesus, believe, and die, and he is saved. And we're protecting that teaching, right? And so, I guess what I what I would really like to accent here with this, then, what is it that leads us to make this specific statement that baptism is necessary for salvation? I I, I mm. think you just yeah yeah you described very well of that it's not absolutely the only means yeah. right but why why do we say baptism is necessary for salvation less specifically people, less people don't baptize people by thinking you can be saved without it because it's the normal means by which and is what you were saying earlier the normal means by which the ups man delivers you your salvation yeah it's, it's how jesus gets it to you it was this is so important like it was jesus idea like that was his idea baptism to wash people with his word in his name he had a reason for it. It wasn't, and, and nowhere in Scripture do you see it saying, uh, go into all nations and baptize people that they might show forth how much they desire to be my followers. So they might show forth that they intend to transform their life. Nowhere does it say that. It says that it kills you and it raises you with the death and resurrection of Jesus over and over again. And it says that the Spirit is at work over and over again, right? So it's, it's Jesus' institution. And on that, but what you're going to look at Jesus and say, yeah, Jesus, I know you gave us this amazing stuff, but it's not necessary. Like, we just don't have the freedom to do that. So we're trying to protect the other side of the heresy, which would get rid of it and try to have a faith apart from an object. There was a time in the early church, in the 300s and 400s, where they would actually wait to baptize somebody until they were old and close to their deathbed or on their deathbed because they were afraid that if you were baptized and you sinned, that you would lose your baptism and that you couldn't get baptized again. Uh, the early church was pretty, was pretty clear on that. And so they would say, well, if you get baptized too early, then you're committing to a completely perfect life. That's not how Paul talks, and it's especially not how the book of Romans talks about baptism, how we are called to continue to drown the old Adam. And it's after Paul talks about baptism that he talks about those very things that he wants to do, he's not able to do. And the things that he doesn't want to do, those are exactly what he ends up doing. Uh, and so he talks about this continual life as a, uh, as a forgiven sinner who is baptized, uh, continuing to uh, to fight against sin and to resist temptation. And when we say that baptism isn't absolutely necessary, but we say that it's necessary, uh, it keeps us from saying, oh, well, I can do this without being baptized. And it, on the other hand, keeps us from saying that God... God could not save us without baptism. Uh, God is all-powerful, omnipotent, and I'm not going to tell him what he can and can't do, and, and I don't think anybody else is really willing to do that either. Oh, too many of us are willing to do well, it, okay. but we shouldn't. We shouldn't. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, and, and I like what you guys said here. You, you brought it back to Scripture. You, you have Jesus' institution. Mm. You have uh, St. Paul talking about this in every single one of his epistles about what it does. And, and, and we didn't even bring in the epistle of Peter yet, which says baptism now saves you corresponding to the flood. Right. And so, yeah, when scripture speaks this way, my point on this would be it is necessary for salvation because of what it does and what mm -hmm. scripture teaches us that it does. And the only way that I can receive salvation is that the sinner in me dies in Christ and that I be made a new man 
that lives in the righteousness of Christ, that 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 which I am clothed with, as St. Paul talks about, that which surrounds me and en- envelops me and makes me viewed only through the lens of Christ by God, our Heavenly Father, as righteous. That's what it does. And so, yes, apart from that, I cannot be saved. Mm-mm. And this is the very object, the thing that delivers this gifts right. to me, which you talked about well with, you know, the UPS man or the big brown truck, as you called it. I, should have I said was that trying really hard not, not to name drop. Right, not name drop. And you did a better job than I did. Thank you. Uh, but, uh, yes, th- this, this is a good way to talk about it. And, 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 and remembering, too, that that doesn't mean that we say, you know, for, for, the, for the child who died fresh out of the womb or something, you know, when you have a, a troubled mother, point to the grace of God, point to the word of God mm. that, that has been at work that this child has been hearing in the womb through the mother and everything else. I mean, we could get off into pastoral care issues on this uh, and talk at length about this. There's so much beautiful things to talk about there. And so we certainly believe that. But then this brings me back to this other word I want to identify. Before you go there, can I jump okay. in one time? Sure. I want I want the transform talk too. But I, I think this is what I was trying to say earlier when I used the word wash and talking about the thief on the cross and, and it being to you individually, because a lot of this for me personally clicked once I just stopped using the word baptize in my own head and and heard that there is a moment in time in history in my life where the church that Jesus sent. Pastor, Christian, in a sense, it doesn't really matter. It is pastor. But in a sense, it really is that the Christianity came through history to take my body and say to me, I wash you in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. And if we could just let that be baptism, that's all that it is, is that Jesus' words about washing me got to me. What a thing to trust now. When I'm, in, when I'm afraid, when I don't... No, when I'm tempted, when I'm struggling, I am forgiven. Not because I believe. I'm forgiven because he said so. And it was it's so clear. And with an element that is uh, so tactile that it can't miss. It hit my head. I mean, I, I guess he could be a real nincompoop of a pastor and miss, but it's pretty hard. So, transform. Well... Let me, let me let me continue talking about this, and, and I think this is this is really great what you just said there as well, and what we've been talking about is this is what is transformed. This is this is what happens, and this is what Scripture teaches us of, of how we are transformed. We we die and are in Christ in baptism. That's what it does. That's why it's necessary for salvation. But I think for a lot of Christians, they have a different understanding. Of transform, mm-hmm. and you definitely didn't go there. But I just want to clear this up so that we, so that folks out there listening, um, all five of them, might have a better idea of what we mean by this, right? Autobots roll out. <laughs> so, so uh, well, right. But we're down to four. <laughs> bring it back to this very serious discussion, though, with just a few minutes left. When when they hear transform, you know, as we talked about with the Roman Catholic Church, and I think this connects into the issue with the Anabaptists then, is that, you know, it gives you this juju juice, as you said, right? You know, it gives me the ability to put it in more simple language, right? It gives me the ability to choose to do right or wrong. It gives me the ability to live as a child of God and to do the right things, right? That's what some people understand means is transformed in baptism. It makes it possible for me to do good things. Gives me that spirit power, right? Mm. But that's not the way that we're talking about transformation and baptism. Pastor Hill. That's exactly right. And when we talk about what baptism does, it's not that it gives you the power or it gives you the ability or that baptism is... A, a spiritual gift that you can leverage towards your own holiness or your own sanctification. Instead, what it's really saying is, here, you, the sinner, is drowned and die, and you arise anew. As a new man, recreated and restored in Christ. Uh, and what does the new man, completely forgiven, completely new, made new by Jesus, not by whatever you did, not by your own desires or wills or wishes or anything else, but made new by Jesus, what do you do? You do 
what Jesus has given you to do. And so you simply live that transformed life because that's who Jesus made you. It's not about what you want to do or what you wish you could do or what you have the power to do. It's about who Jesus made you. And so all of the works that you do are made new in Christ as it comes, as he comes to you in baptism. Yeah. Who he made you and who he is. Exactly. As you live in Christ, you can't do any other than do what he does. And, and, and these are viewed as righteous by our heavenly father. So, then connecting to this Anabaptist issue, right? And, and the next line there with just only a few minutes yeah, to let, talk about this. Let's not do that because you there's, don't there's want just to? this beautiful moment that just happened that only a child of the 80s could really appreciate it, I think, in which we were talking about the Transformers and then Pastor Ill talked about having the power. And you have to know there was this other show on with the Transformers with a guy who wrote a green cat and would say, I have the power and by the power of Grayskull. So the fact that we can actually title this show Transformers, He-Man, and Baptism is fantastic and a great way to close it. Autobots, Autobots fight their battles to destroy the evil forces of the Decepticons. That's what baptism does for you. There we go. Much better than moving on to talk about something realistic and serious. <laughs> <laughs> we still got, we got two minutes. We I saw that terrible time. smirk and I knew we were in some kind <laughs> in some of trouble. trouble. There is something else that's really valuable to point out. You did, in fact, read all of Article 9 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. And we have talked about the first third of the first sentence. And I think that's awesome, too. But the whole, the other two thirds talk about this Anabaptist issue. They do, and and I think it stems from their lack of understanding of what transform means, and they're they're so worried about it to kind of a different end. But if you're going to transform, wouldn't you rather be an uh, a, an airplane than a car? Like, why are they? Why are the airplanes the bad guys? Oh with, wait, oh wait. Sorry, with a minute and a half, I have a serious question. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Pastors, what happens if I'm worried that I'm not sure that my baptism took, or mm. uh, if if I'm having all of a sudden I'm hearing this and I don't feel that transformation? Mm. Now, what do I do? Well, as as the saint and sinner struggle going on within all of us, this side of the return of Christ, it's something that you have to daily return to. This reality that is your baptism. Right, that doesn't mean go back and be re- rebaptized. Right, this could be misunderstood as well. But this is why Luther commends to us in the small catechism beautifully. I point to it all the time in my own pastoral ministry. Remember your baptism. Rise each day. Make the sign of the cross upon yourself, as was done in your baptism, marking you as one who is redeemed. Because when you when you put your faith there to that object, as we have talked about so well, right, and you believe that this was for me, for you, right? Then you are transformed. Mm. You live with faith in that promise that Christ has drowned that sinner. And and that is also then how I fight the devil with his lies and temptations that come upon me that cause me to doubt that. You know, I, I often like to talk about how Luther would get into shouting matches with the devil. And he does this all out of his baptized life. He's like, go to hell, Satan. You know, literally, I can say that because that's where he's going really go. what we want to do. And and this is how we fight in that baptized life, trusting the power of baptism that grants you salvation. This is a beautiful gift that we have talked about. Here. You don't have to feel it. Just know that it happened. It happened. It's yours. Faith clings to the promise, as we have so often and beautifully confessed as Lutherans. Nothing more Lutheran than baptism. We have confessed that here today. We hope that you will continue. Transformers are more Lutheran than baptism. Uh, What are you talking about? Stop derailing it.